Let's get philosophical. Critical Reflections on Conspiracy Theory Theory Authored by Curtis Hagen The following podcast episode is the second part of a three-part series on the reliability of the media regarding conspiracy theories. This episode is based on material taken from an article entitled, Is Conspiracy Theorizing Really Epistemically Problematic?, published in the journal Episteme in 2020, by Curtis Hagen, which is a response to an article by philosopher Keith Harris. The discussion of the media's reliability is somewhat tangential to the main argument of the article, having been included there in order to address the concerns of a reviewer who seemed to share Harris's optimistic view. In this podcast version, some of the material from the article's footnotes are integrated into the presentation for richer detail. Is the mainstream media reliable regarding conspiracy theories? Part 2, Contingencies, Conflicts of Interest, and Toxic Truths, a further response to Keith Harris. The mainstream media's reliability regarding contested accounts of significant events may be difficult to adjudicate. Are we to rely on the mainstream media itself for determining its own reliability? That seems methodologically questionable. Further, there are mainstream journalists, and former mainstream journalists, who argue from experience that American mainstream journalists who challenge sensitive official narratives run into a buzzsaw. For example, consider the comments of Dan Rather, who was the news anchor for the CBS Evening News for 24 years. In general, before the war, before September 11th, fear ruled every newsroom in the country in some important ways. It was the fear, if we don't dumb it down, if we don't tart it up, if we don't go to the trivial at the expense of the important, you know what, we're not going to be publishing a newspaper or magazine, and we're not going to be on the air, the ratings will eat us up. A more important relative of that fear takes hold in the wake of war. It is, you know, I know what the right question is, I should bore in and if he or she doesn't answer, should come back with a follow-up and another follow-up. You know what, I'm not confident the public is going to understand that I see that as patriotic, rather than, not patriotic, there was a time in South Africa when people would put flaming tires around people's necks if they dissented, and in some ways the fear is that you will be necklaced here. You'll have a flaming tire of lack of patriotism put around your neck. Now it's that fear that keeps journalists from asking the toughest of the tough questions and to continue to bore in on the tough questions so often. Again, I'm humbled to say, I do not accept myself from this criticism. It shouldn't be too surprising that mainstream media sources can be unreliable on certain topics. After all, the vast majority of the mainstream media is controlled by a few giant corporations that have interests in selling certain products, including pharmaceuticals and instruments of war. Nevertheless, as philosopher Keith Harris points out, they have at least some interest in getting the facts right. However, one may legitimately wonder how powerful that interest really is. It would seem that mainstream outlets would indeed want to avoid blatantly misreporting simple questions of fact. But the media's ability to ignore facts, underreport them, or report them with a subtle spin is significant. In addition to viewers and readers, they have advertisers to please. And so-called access journalists don't want to step on the toes of those who provide them with access. 
Sometimes news outlets are pressured by government agencies to hold back on stories, such as the warrantless wiretapping program, which was not revealed until after President Bush's re-election. In short, the mainstream media has conflicting interests and is susceptible to influence by external pressures. When it comes to the allegations made in conspiracy theories, the alleged truth can be downright toxic, in the sense described by Lee Basham. Toxicity is the likelihood that some conspiratorial scenarios, even if well-evidenced, are too toxic for our usual institutions of public information to disseminate to the public or even investigate. Cover-up by intentional neglect, not descending control, is the easily predictable consequence. According to Basham, the problem of toxic truths can threaten to invert our apparently warranted expectations of public institutions of information, our public trust. The idea is this, up to a certain point, the more momentous a story, the more attention will be paid to getting it right. However, for certain kinds of issues, there is a threshold point after which the situation is suddenly perceived to be too momentous. For example, Consider what happened when newspapers recounted all the votes in Florida to determine who had actually received the most votes in the presidential election of 2000. Relatively uniform reporting, under headlines like, Bush still wins, indicated that, when all the votes in Florida were recounted, Gore had the most votes. But this fact, which conflicted starkly with the headlines, was reported only deep into the articles. The emphasis was put on the fact that if only the counties that Gore had requested to be recounted were recounted, Bush still wins. Did newspapers bury the lead in the interest of avoiding a destabilizing situation? It may have been worse than just awkward to highlight the fact that the man who had just recently moved into the White House was not the man who should have been president based on the best assessment of the votes. Consider also the following case. There was serious concern in the wake of the JFK assassination, that if the Russians had been involved, or even if they had merely been thought to have been involved, nuclear exchanges could have ensued. This seems to have played a role in President Johnson convincing the reluctant Earl Warren to lead the commission that would bear his name. Historian Catherine Olmsted recounts the situation this way. To many Americans, the murder required a government investigation of a possible conspiracy. To Washington elites, though, the murder of Oswald required a different response, an official report naming him as the lone assassin. President Johnson agreed that it would be best for the country not to probe too deeply into the killing. To utter the word conspiracy in public, Johnson believed, might risk nuclear war. Similar thinking may have influenced Deputy U.S. Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach as well. Olmsted writes. In the memo, recommending the creation of the Warren Commission, Katzenbach told President Johnson that the public must be satisfied that Oswald was the assassin, that he did not have Confederates who are still at large, and that the evidence was such that he would have been convicted at trial. In other words, Johnson must convince the public of something he personally did not believe. When this much is at stake, certain truths or inquiries, it may seem, must be avoided. They become a kind of third rail, which everyone knows not to touch. They are toxic, or radioactive. Basham illustrates the idea with a literally radioactive example. If you approached American conspiracy theorists of the 1950s who claim mass media and law enforcement are purposely ignoring the real dangers of radioactive fallout to the downwind public caused by the Atomic Energy Commission's nuclear bomb testing, 
including a mass die-off of livestock, with the reply that all can rest assured, the Department of Agriculture will no doubt hold a press conference to correct the deception, they would not be impressed. Nor should they be. It never happened. Harris worries that when people venture beyond mainstream sources they risk reading biased sources. However, when it comes to accusations that would be significantly disruptive if acknowledged to be true, one has reason to expect the mainstream will also act in a biased way so as to support the status quo. And though one can expect mainstream reporting on momentous issues to be heavily scrutinized indeed, the harshest scrutiny may come from those concerned that the story not deviate too far from the official line or be too offensive to patriotic sensibilities. Consider the allegations of CIA involvement in the importation of cocaine to the United States in connection with the Nicaraguan Contras, which was described in a series of articles published in the San Jose Mercury News by Gary Webb. The rest of the mainstream media attacked Webb, and his career was ruined. But was he substantially wrong? His story was discredited, but was that really justified? Perhaps his story was just too toxic to be acceptable to the establishment, including the major media establishment. It is not easy to determine what to think. But merely assuming that the incentive structure of the mainstream media assures that they got it right does not seem to be a safe assumption. Putting the point mildly, political scientist Joseph Osinski writes, The mainstream media has its blind spots. For example, there was considerable trepidation at the Washington Post as Woodward and Bernstein moved forward with their investigation into the Watergate break-in. Sometimes, journalists have partisan biases and treat their favored party with kid gloves. And, investigating alleged conspiracies vigorously could cost journalists access or respect. Although, in the case of Watergate, the investigation continued and the conspiracy was exposed, if things had been just a little different it may well have ended much more ambiguously. As Leon Nefak concludes his podcast series on Watergate. Was Nixon's ouster the inevitable result of checks and balances working as intended? Or did the country just get lucky? When I look back all I see are moments when things could have gone in a different direction. The Washington Post could have assigned the story of the break-in to reporters who were less aggressive than Woodward and Bernstein. James McCord could have chosen not to write a letter blowing the whistle on the cover-up. John Dean could have decided not to turn on his boss or he could have had a worse memory. Nixon could have decided not to install tape recorders in the Oval Office or the Senate. Watergate investigators could have not found out about them or Nixon could have destroyed those tapes as several people advised him to do. I would add that Martha Mitchell could have been less of an eccentric snoop. As for the Iran-Contra affair, much remains ambiguous. For example, the role, if any, of then-Vice President George Bush is unclear, as is the connection, if any, with drug importation involving the Contras. There is a survival bias issue here, as well. We can only definitively cite cases that did end up being pursued. But the tenuousness of the process of these and other cases should give us pause. For example, when a group of conspiracy theorists called the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI sent burglarized FBI files to various news outlets, most of them just sent the files back to the FBI. After agonizing about it, the Washington Post decided to run the story. Others followed, and the existence of COINTELPRO was eventually revealed. But that part was rather tenuous too, 
because only one of the stolen documents made reference to COINTELPRO. Even in this rather ideal case, in which multiple news outlets had been sent clearly incriminating documents, the outcome was not certain. These considerations suggest that one cannot summarily dismiss a conspiracy theory just because the mainstream media claims that one should. Even if they denounce proponents of the theory, calling them names, and claim that they have debunked the theory in question, that still would not justify confident dismissal. To really be justified in confidence, one would have to weigh the evidence on both sides. Like it or not, a simple appeal to a consensus in the mainstream media is just not sufficient. While it would be convenient if we could trust the mainstream media, when it comes to issues that could be regarded as toxic, it is not safe to assume that the mainstream media will cover it in an unbiased manner. You have been listening to a modified portion of an article entitled, Is Conspiracy Theorizing Really Epistemically Problematic?, published in the journal Episteme in 2020, by Curtis Hagen.